we will have our scripture reading, which is Genesis 21, 1 through 7, and Don Hadfield uh, will be reading that scripture. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called his son, the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised Isaac as he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said as Abraham? Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. It's such an honor uh, always to, to come up here uh, and be with you guys here at Sojourn. Um, I met uh, Pastor Matt when I was a pastor at a church in Big Rapids. And he was just uh, such a brother, kind of ten, you know, ten years further into the ministry journey. It was just a huge source of encouragement, and you know, of course, got connected with Lou and Ben and Dave. So, just it's such a sweet, sweet thing to come and enjoy, uh, enjoy your 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 fellowship and worshiping with you. And excited for you guys this new season. I know there's been some changes, new staff positions, and all that stuff. So excited to see what God has next for you guys. Uh, before I was uh, a fuddy-duddy middle-aged pastor married with three kids, I had a, uh, a, a very hipster season of my life where I was living in downtown Columbus, Ohio, and I was riding my fixie, my single-seat speed bike around to a coffee shop where I worked, and uh, it was a coffee shop, this is back in the day, I don't know if you guys remember this, where when like third wave coffee hit on the scene, it was like, our coffee is so good that we don't have to be nice to you. Like we can just be like grumpy and mean and like you're welcome for this $5 pour over. Um, and uh, I, I had, uh, uh, I think hospitality, is, uh, hipsters have discovered hospitality since then. So that's, that's nice. And I had a Subaru and a dog. I think I have a picture of me at this time. There is me. Um, that was uh, my Subaru, my green hoodie that I wore all the time. And uh, fun fact, that uh, was on my eHarmony profile, that picture. And uh, Camille, my wife, said it did me no favors that she married me in spite of that picture. <laughs> so uh, we di- different aesthetics, I guess, going on. But I go into that because that season was very angsty uh, for me. It, it was uh, a time where I felt like my whole life was just like just waiting. Uh, I desperately wanted to be married, and I was pretty confident God had called me to be a pastor, but I just felt completely helpless to figure out how to pursue those, go- pursue those goals. Um, I was leading, leading worship part-time at a church plant, so I was getting some ministry experience, um, but it just felt like I was, I was just waiting. And, and then I met Camille, and she completed me, and everything has been perfect ever since. <laughs> Why are you guys laughing? I wasn't... I wasn't. <laughs> yes, just kidding. Uh, Camille, my wife, is an incredible gift, uh, but we had a, a pretty rough first couple years of marriage that also felt like waiting, like we had entered into this covenant that we both had a high value for and all these like, beautiful promises of God. Uh, wrapped up in it, and we were waiting for God to grow us and do the work that he designed marriage to do in us. And then I could talk about the the two plus years that Camille and I waited to get pregnant with our our first child, you know, month after month of sadness and confusion. But then, you know, for a lot of us, at some point, all the unknowns 
of life, who you'll marry, where you'll live, how many kids you'll have, what your job will be, are no longer uncertainties or questions. They're facts. They're, they're givens. Uh, the, the waiting for all these givens in your life is over. There's no more you know, major life events to, on the horizon or changes to wait for. And I'd say that then, the, that's when the real waiting begins. Without big life, event, big life events to pin our hopes for satisfaction on, we're faced with just that, you know, that, that ache uh, for eternity that's inside all of us, and, and, and all we can do is wait. We're faced with our own brokenness and compulsions without you know, the convenient solutions of like, when, I, when I'm finally married, or when I finally get a house, or I finally get that job, then this won't be an issue. And then we have a choice to either wait on God in that void, in that gap, or try to, try to fill the void uh, with busyness, work, food, or phones, Netflix, whatever. I think you could argue that the entire life of a Jesus follower is that of waiting. When Matt described a little bit of the series that you guys are going through, this idea of a story of stories or God's big story that he is telling throughout Scripture... Uh, and continues to tell in our lives and today as, as the church, uh, I, I thought of waiting. So much of the experience of God's people through Scripture, especially when you get into the Old Testament and like generations go by in a sentence, do uh, you see how much time passes and how much of God's people, how much time God's people spent waiting? And we're going to look at uh, this chapter, uh, Genesis 21. It's an incredibly pivotal, pivotal chapter in God's big story here. And I think we see some very powerful uh, elements, a very p- powerful paradigms of what it means to wait for God in his promises and how the promises of God interact with what it means to be a human uh, in the choices that we make. And the question I want us to ask today is how do we walk by faith in our stories, especially when it feels like God is not fulfilling his promises, when it feels like God is not fulfilling his promises? What does it mean to walk by faith in the nitty-gritty of our specific stories and just the main thing I hope we walk away with is this, this loving invitation from God to wait on him with him, choosing to walk by faith in the places of our lives where we feel pain. This is about as counter-cultural counter uh, as you can get in our day and age. We never have to wait anymore, right? Because we have the little me machine in our pocket. So even when we do wait at a stoplight or dentist you know, office or the grocery store line or something like that. We don't have to wait anymore because we can get some work done or distract ourselves. But waiting's a, a big deal. And in this passage that we're going to look at, there's some good news about waiting and there's some bad news. The good news is that we see that God is faithful and he always does what he says he's going to do. I just love Sarah's line in the passage, God has made laughter for me. This idea of the promises fulfilled just resulting in laughter. But we also see that he doesn't fulfill these promises in the timing that we think is reasonable. There's almost always a gap between the promise and the fulfillment. And I hope that seeing uh, our always faithful God doing what he said he would do as he promised will bolster our courage and strengthen us to wait. The hard stuff in this passage that we'll get to is the pain and brokenness, the pain and broken relationships that come from the strategies that humans employ to avoid waiting on God, 
to speed along God's work in our lives and, and try to fix other people's lives in our own strength. It's pain and broken relationships that we see echo through, throughout history for generations, which I hope sobers us about the dangers of not waiting on God and taking things into our own hands. So both the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of people re- refusing to wait in the gap on God are seen here. And again, my hope is that we'll hear God's invitation to wait with, with expectancy, with hope, because he is a God who is faithful, who will do what he says. Who, he's a God who, who can, if we let him, redeem the waiting in our lives in beautiful ways. I haven't heard a lot of sermons preached on waiting, but it's all over scripture. Let me just read two of my favorite waiting passages. Psalm 27, David is very much in a void, in a pit, and it ends, the psalm ends with, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I love that courage and strength are required to wait. It's not to like fight battles and climb mountains. It's like to wait requires strength. And Isaiah 40 says a similar thing. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Contrary to the, remember the Titans movie, this is not about winning a football game. This is about just waiting on the Lord, that we drain ourselves waiting and we need to be renewed in our strength. So if you're in a season of waiting, you've experienced waiting, uh, or you will someday, uh, it doesn't mean that there's something weird or abnormal about your life. There's not, there's not a problem. This is like normal. This is baseline experience for a human, in particular a, a Jesus follower. And we're, we can know that we're joining with God's people throughout, throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, and joining with God's people today as we wait together. So let's dive in, verse 1 and 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. The promised child is born. This child was promised all the way back in Genesis 12, which uh, chronologically was 25 years before our text today. God spoke audibly and promised a child to Abraham and Sarah, and then they had to wait two and a half decades to see the fulfillment and in that two and a half decades, it was a wild ride. Like we have Abraham essentially like pimping out his wife twice, like pretending that she is his sister. And then he gets rich out of that lie somehow. Like the king tries to marry her and then sends her back with a bunch of money and cattle. Uh, we've seen a wife, Sarah, tell her husband to sleep with another woman in order to get a child, like tired of waiting. And so sleep with the slave. We've seen an entire region full of cities wiped out by burning sulfur and fire. Uh, it's been a mess. But through all that, here we have it, the promise fulfilled. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in my old age. 
These verses are so fun. It's so fun to just soak in these, like enter into them and imagine the joy and celebration. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. Imagine just aching, waiting for a child your whole life. Maybe some of you have experienced this. Imagine seeing your body, feeling your body age past the years of childbearing without a child. Just the deep sense of loss and lack. And then imagine waiting for 25 years for something that God audibly spoke and promised to give to you. It's one thing to wait and wonder if something's going to happen. It's another thing to be told it will happen and then have to wait. And we see Sarah just guffawing, belly laughing. God has made laughter for me. This, the promise fulfills, just burbles up. The joy just burbles up in her, and she can't not laugh. Everyone who hears about my lot in life will join me in the laughter. Such a sweet, sweet moment of motherhood, of a promise fulfilled You imagine Abraham and Sarah uh, just being overjoyed. He throws, Abraham throws a huge feast when the child is weaned, so he's probably a year or two old. So just imagine this like year or two. What is the first year or two of parenthood like? You know, just the, these older folks on the floor watching their baby roll over, watching him crawl, delighting in his first steps, saying, Mama and Dada, this is God's faithfulness, seeing this promised child grow healthily and be weaned, uh, and then inviting all their friends over to celebrate. God always fulfills his promise. Let's not miss the, the beauty of this moment, the season in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Can we let the, the beauty of this promise fulfill, the sweetness of this moment of fulfillment encourage us in our waiting this story shows us objectively who God is. He's a God who does what he said he would do. The text makes great pains. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore him a son at the time of which God had spoken. Like this is God doing what he said he will do. Can we let this, this objective picture of God being faithful and fulfilling promises carry at least as much weight as our subjective experiences of lack? And, but we can also just admit that we often read about things that God has promised in Scripture and yet not see them in our own lives. You know, Jesus said that his followers would receive power from on high. So why do I feel so helpless and powerless in my life? Where's the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit that who I supposedly have living in my body? Where, where is that? Jesus said he'd never leave me or forsake me. Why do I feel so alone? I know I prayed this prayer a lot before I was married. You know, theologically, biblically, I know that what my soul longs for is God himself. But all I feel right now is the devastating loneliness of singleness. I feel like I would cry out, God, either give me what I want or be enough. Be my peace. Give me peace. I can't just sit here. And it's in those questions, in those painful places of waiting, we have to see God's word showing us again that he is faithful. He always does what he said. He will complete the work that he said he would do in you. And listen, he often does that work, some of his best work in the waiting. He fulfills his promises in the waiting, not in spite of it. Waiting is not an interruption to the work in your life. The waiting most often is the work. Because of God's faithfulness, we will be able to say we believe because of the truths of Scripture that God has made laughter for me. 
But her happy story takes a dark twist. Look at verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So Sarah sees Ishmael laughing and wants him gone and his mom, banished. And the word used, translated here, laughing, can have lots of different meanings. But most commentators uh, say that it's, it's kind of like this mo- sense of mocking. You know, Ishmael probably would have been a teenager, like 15 or 16 at the time. And so just imagine his life. You know, he, he was born, he was heir to Abraham's uh, inheritance and an only child. And then all of a sudden, there's a new baby. So he probably had a lot of adjustment. Now there's all this tension and uncertainty and Sarah was triggered in a big way and wants Abraham to cast Hagar and Ishmael out. This is such an important warning for us to see uh, that the human heart is so quick to take God's good things and make them ultimate. Sarah is allowing this gift of God, the promised son, to rise up to a place where her ability to love people is gone. James says it like this, what, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires at war within you? And evil desires are most often good desires that get too strong, that get over, overdeveloped. We might love our job and, our, and the work God's given us, but if we love it too much, then we begin to depend on the job to give us what only God can give us for security or affirmation. And so we, we fight with our spouse because we're working too much, or we get frustrated with our kids because they keep us from working how we'd like. Tim Keller describes Sarah's laughter in this chapter evolving from this like great, uh, grateful, this laughter soaked in gratitude. God has made laughter for me to a laughter of addiction, kind of like the, the maniacal laughter of like Gollum and Lord of the Rings, like this precious thing that now is like twisting and contorting her. And inevitably, the laughter of addiction leads to pain and destruction. Verse 12. God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Anyone else feeling kind of heartbroken for Hagar? Like, why, why is God condoning this? I'm not sure there's an airtight explanation that will, you know, satisfy our 21st century sensibilities, but one commentator pointed out that this is God looking out for both Isaac and Ishmael. This allows Isaac to be Abraham's heir in the, in, in the line of the promise, but it's also for the welfare of Ishmael, getting him out of what might be a toxic environment and for him to have space to become a nation. This is mind-blowing, but because God promised to make Abraham's offspring into a great nation. And so even though it wasn't God's original plan, Ishmael is Abraham's offspring, and the promise extends even to Ishmael. I think this is a very fascinating picture to consider about how God's promises and human choices interact. They're interconnected. God responds to human choices. There's interplay. We see that God has given humans agency to choose and act and engage and make moves, ability to make decisions. And while his purposes can never be thwarted, the details, the components of his purposes 
can be influenced by humans. This is breathtaking, and it's all over Scripture. How we see God moving his grand plan of redemption forward in the mess of sinful human history. This is good news if we have ears to hear, because it means that he can move redemption forward in my mess and in your mess. And so here we are, following right after this beautiful moment of a promise fulfilled, we're following a single mother and her son wandering in the wilderness. And why are they out there? How do we get here? It's because instead of waiting on God for the promised child, Sarah thinks through what are the biological options? Like what what are the resources available to me to fulfill the promise that God has already made to me? And And she offers up another woman for her husband to sleep with in order to get a baby. Because of Abraham and Sarah's schemes to get God's good promise child on their own timeline in their own strength. Verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And when she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is so heartbreaking, imagining being in in Hagar's shoes. But in the sadness and not rightness of this story, the messiness of it, let's not miss the, the heart of God towards these people, how he responds to the brokenness of the situation. He hears the cries of the oppressed and the downtrodden. He's near to the brokenhearted. And from this place of desperation, Hagar hears from God, sees God meet her needs, sees her son grow up. God was with the boy, and he grew up and became a great nation. For a mom, from Hagar's point of view, this seems like a win. You know, it's pretty good. It's redemptive. God is compassionate. He's not afraid to interact with the messes that humans make. But I feel like I have to at least mention that in the, in the Quran, Ishmael is stated as the forefather for the Muslim people. The entire reality of Islam today, with all the conflict and confusion and extremism, along with just the, the darkness from normal run-of-the-mill Islam, can be traced back, at least in part, to Sarah and Abraham's scheme thousands of years ago to try to get God's promise without God on their own terms. The implications of this choice they made, are we're, we're experiencing them today. This is a very hard truth to swallow. Ishmael is preserved, and here we are, millennia later, still seeing the effects of the story. And it's hard. It's hard to tie a tidy bow on the story and have it all make sense. But what I hope we can see, I, hope, I want the gravitas, the weight of Abraham and Sarah's choices that they made as they were waiting on God's promises to really hit us hard. This is a warning for us. Not only is waiting for God the way to receive the laughter that he has made for each and every one of us, but refusing to wait for God is the way to all kinds of pain and confusion that can linger 
for a long time. This is dating the person you know you shouldn't date because you're just so lonely and tired of waiting. And the implications of that relationship, you will, your, our baggage you'll carry with you for the rest of your life. This is, you know, jerking your family around from job to job because there isn't any place that, you know, pays enough or makes you feel important enough or, or, or whatever. And, and so your, your kids live without this place of stability as you're chasing your, your needs. This is going to food or porn for comfort because marriage is hard right now. Instead of waiting for God for, for healing and restoration, there's just a, a, a numbing. This is a warning to us about the seriousness of trying to meet our own needs, needs that God gave us and needs that God has set designed to meet with himself. But that when we try to meet them in our own ways, it causes havoc and destruction, potentially for years or even generations. Now, the good news is that you will not, you cannot stop God's faithfulness to you. If you are in Christ, you are safe and secure. You belong to him. No amount of sin or scheming can stop the God of the universe and just the tidal wave of goodness that will surely follow you all the days of your life. There's no limits to how God can accomplish his redemptive purposes in your story. But I think the laughter and the lived experience of that story of redemption that God is working out it depends on the degree to which we are willing to trust him, to trust and obey, walk by faith, and wait on him in the void. To close, I want to look at three practical questions about waiting on God. So give us some practical applications, I think, and then also lead us to Jesus. The first question is how? How do we wait on God? And I think we get a pretty vivid picture, uh, just as a starting point of waiting on God in verse 16. That Hagar, look at what, what it says in verse 16. Then she, Hagar, went and sat down opposite, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look upon the death of a child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. So the three things we see here, Hagar doing, she sat, she lifted up her voice, and she wept. Like, if you needed a three-step plan as a starting point for how to wait on God, this is a great place to start. To be clear, like, hermeneutically, this is descriptive. This is not prescriptive, not a command, thus says the Lord or whatever. But take it or leave it. I think this is a good reflex. We see the result. Like, she does this, and she has an experience with God. When we are at the end of our rope waiting on God, she was still. First, she, she sat. She quit walking. Quit trying to fix it. Quit trying to get somewhere and just sat. Walking by faith. And I'm trying to be a little tongue-in-cheek. Like walking by faith sometimes looks like sitting down. Uh, It might require us to stop and sit before God. Our busyness, our frenetic problem-solving, our job-searching, our online dating, our voracious appetite for distraction— can significantly reduce the ability to receive the, the promise from God, the work that he wants to do. You can think of your heart, you know, like a vessel, like a bowl, you know, and we can, we, we can just fill it with stuff and try to fill our problems, fix our problems, or we can sit there empty and wait to receive, to be filled by him. God invites us to do this in Psalm 46.10, the classic verse, be still and know that I am God. Next, she lifted up her voice. We see all throughout the Bible that it seems like the people who experience God the most in his provision are the people who pour out their hearts to him. 
are brutally honest with their emotions. Psalm 142 says this, the intro, I love this, a mascal of David when he was in the cave. You feel like you're in a cave. David was literally in a cave in this situation. But you know, we feel like we're in the cave of suffering. There's a prayer, and David says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. This is a mind-blowing type of relationship with someone, let alone the God of the universe. Pouring out my complaint Telling him of my trouble. God can take it. I mean, depending on your, your family system, your family of origin, like, you know, complaining or having problems or being sad, like, wasn't okay. You're not allowed to voice, to voice those kinds of things. That's not how God is. And friends, it is so deeply formative for humans to move towards a relationship at a, at a point of distress, at a point of pain. I mean, children do this instinctively shamelessly. It's beautiful. We tell our three-year-old Ruby not to climb on the couch. She's breathtakingly beautiful, but so, so clumsy. And uh, it feels like it balances out. Like if she was graceful and that beautiful, it would be big trouble. But she climbs on the couch, and when she, and we tell her not to. And then when she falls and gets hurt, what does she do? She runs to us in tears, wanting comfort. She wants comfort for getting hurt doing the thing I told her not to do. Become like a child to receive the kingdom. We can pour out our complaints to God. It forms our souls to complain to God. Because we're, we're practicing the truth in something that seems as like unrespectable as complaining. But when we're doing it to God, we're, we're rehearsing the fact that like only he can change it. We can't do it. He's the only one. By choosing to take that complaint to him rather than our spouse or our friends or whoever else, not that there's not space for that, like we're saying like only God can do this. And that, that, that we're rehearsing with our brains and forming neural pathways that create that instinct. God help. Like that's our, that's our instinct in pain, instinct in the void. Just like kids, if they're happy, tell mom and dad. If they're sad, tell mom and dad. And our emotions then become relational touch points, building blocks for our intimacy with God. Which brings me to the last thing, Hagar wept. When was the last time that you wept, like had a good cry? I would say I probably cry three or four times a year. Maybe more for remodeling our house. That, that, <laughs> that summer broke me. Um, but when I do, it always feels like a gift to me, like a, a release where I it, I can't make it happen, but it's just like this gift where I get past the sense that I need to like hold it together, manage my emotions, and just come home to what I'm feeling. And listen to the intimacy that Psalm 56 describes with God in our tears. It says, you have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You see this tender father like counting our tears, collecting them, keeping track of them. He sees And sure, we have different levels of emotion, different ways of expressing them. I'm not saying, like, you have to cry or whatever. But what, like, what if we had, like, some space, like, that the ability to cry was seen as emotional maturity as adults and not just immaturity? <laughs> However you express your emotions, the point is to express them. And in order to express them, you, you have to know what they are. And in, in dealing with these emotional spaces, this is how we come home to the waiting that God has for us. Have you noticed how hard it is for Christians to say they're angry? 
Like, Christians don't get angry. We get frustrated. Like, it took me two years of marriage counseling to admit, get comfortable saying, like, hey, I'm angry right now. But there's so much comfort in healing in this. Pouring out our emotions to God is one of the most robust applications of the gospel. So it makes sense in this, these, these voids where we have all this pain and loss, when we can come home to some of these hard emotions, we have to embrace the fact that who we are in Christ, based on who we are in Christ, God looks at us as a father. No matter what we've done in resistance to waiting, no matter how we've hurt ourselves by disobeying, we live in this gospel truth that our belovedness in, in Christ is secure and we can run to him with our complaints and emotions. The next question is, what does a waiting life look like? Or maybe to say it another way, what kind of life rhythms would make it possible to sit, to pour out our hearts, lift up our voices, and feel our feelings? I think it look a lot of different ways, but I think it, it requires intentionality. Like, it just doesn't happen by accident. There's the, the tidal wave of distraction and comfort that is available to us in this day and age is, is too overpowering. But it's a very small example of intentional waiting in my life was realizing that uh, there's, there was part of my habit of reading novels at night uh, to fall asleep was, was at least in part an attempt to kind of get peace, silence the monkey mind, and avoid some of the hard, you know, feelings from the day by just, you know reading until I couldn't stay awake anymore. And I felt the invitation to, to end the day with a psalm and some quiet listening prayer, letting that stuff come up, the stuff that I didn't, maybe didn't process as I went throughout my day, and offering it to my father, and then asking God to lay his hand on me, to tuck me in at night like the father that he says he is. And then to wait, to let those feelings come up and, and just hold them before him. Now, and knowing what I know about Sojourn, I imagine a lot of you guys are doing things like this. You start your day with stillness, scripture, and prayer instead of Instagram or, or the news or you know, the rhythms of, of church life, church family life, community groups where we can share what we're struggling with, what we're waiting for, and wait together, admonish each other together. And I mean, you're here gathering with God's People. This is a huge structure. The Sunday gathering is a huge way to wait on God well, to show up for the work of worship on Sunday morning, sing songs even if you don't feel them. At a prayer and worship night we had down at Redemption City a while ago, someone asked for prayer because she had just gotten crushed that week by death. Like two or three people in connection to her her life uh, died, and, and some, you know, one of them was like you know, a mom, a you know, 36-year-old mom with like you know, four kids or something like that, and she was just devastated by the loss and hopelessness of death and was just angry at God, and here we are at this prayer and worship night, and she unloads this, and of course we don't have any answers to make it go away, but she let us lay hands on her and pray over her. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's beautiful and glorious. We just wait in the pain. It requires intentionality, rhythms that we work into our lives that can sustain us when storms come, when the pain comes. It requires radically different priorities than the expectations that the world has. The way of the world and the way of the devil is to reach out and have sex with a slave, to grab fruit off the tree. The same Hebrew word used to describe what Eve did in the Garden of Eden and reaching and taking the tree is the same verb used to describe Abraham going in to Hagar to conceive Ishmael. 
to get our needs and desires met apart from God without waiting. That, that, that's, that's what our surrounding culture would, would say and even celebrate us doing, and that ruins everything. The last question is, what are we waiting for? Isaac, the promised son, is born to Abraham. And this points us to Jesus, the other promised son, that, that points us to God's fulfillment of his promise to redeem his people back, that he will send a redeemer who will crush evil's head. 1 Peter 3.18 says it like this, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is what we celebrate in communion. The truer and better Isaac came in the person of Jesus in order to bring us to God so we might live and be with God as our Father under his loving, faithful rule of our lives. We come to the table to celebrate that Jesus has already come and suffered once for sin. We, and, and we acknowledge that we are waiting. Despite We have this down payment of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and now we are waiting to be fully brought to God. And he gave us this meal to celebrate that week after week. And mercifully, God gives us a picture. The, the kindness of this is overwhelming, of how the story ends. No matter what, no matter what kind of Hagar-like situations we create in our sin and effort to fulfill promises on our own, this will happen. Let me read these words from Revelation 21 over you. I invite you to close your eyes and just enter into this picture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The question for us then is, will we embrace the waiting in our stories and walk by faith to wait on God? Trust him, obey him, and wait on him to make a laughter for you that will last forever. Communion servers, you can come, for up, come forward. There will be a few minutes of music, and you're invited to, when you're ready to come down the middle aisle, grab the elements, and return to your seat. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we come before you as your children, grateful to be able to call you Father. We come before you uh, waiting, all of us waiting in some way, shape, or form. And uh, we come before you unsatisfied because we know that only in perfect union with you can we be satisfied. So would you meet us, Father? Father, in the name of Jesus, would you just meet individuals here in this room uh, who are having uh, seasons of waiting brought up in their memories or in a just soul-crushing season of waiting right now? Would you comfort them with your presence? May they feel seen by you, loved by you, feel your, your comfort in your nearness. And Father, this picture of being with you, 
for eternity, having you wipe away our tears. May that sustain us and strengthen us in our waiting. In Jesus' name, amen.